this is special coverage on WNYC, the 20th anniversary morning. This is special coverage on WNYC, the 20th anniversary morning of the September 11th attacks. Good morning, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer, and I'll be your host from now until 11 o'clock as we move through time together for the next two and a half hours with guests and your calls and several moments of silence along the way to mark the exact times when the most dramatic of the 9-11 events occurred. The first of those is coming up in just a few minutes at 8.46, when the first of the hijacked airplanes struck the World Trade Center. We'll also go in and out of the ceremony for the families at the Trade Center site, where they have begun the alphabetical reading of the 2,983 names of everyone who was killed on 9-11, plus the six who died in the World Trade Center attack of 1993. They've done this ceremony every year since the year after the 9-11 attacks, 2002. The reading of the names, we will have it in pieces, in and out during our coverage this morning. We will also have guests, a very special one for me personally, coming up in a minute, a WNYC person who I was with on that day. But first, I want to invite you into this observance. There's a saying in the news business that journalism is the first rough draft of history. Well, maybe your calls today will be the second rough draft of history. So listeners, where were you 20 years ago today? What's your most vivid memory of September 11, 2001? Call in and say it out loud if you would like to at 646-435-7280, 646-435-7280. Maybe in the worst case scenario, you lost someone personally close to you. You can say that person's name and maybe one thing you'd like them to be remembered for, 646-435-7280. Or maybe you would just like to tell people who are too young to remember it about that day that is unforgettable to you. If you were in the city or in a suburb that people to commuted uh, that people commuted to the Trade Center from or wherever you were, what's your most vivid memory of 9-11. Usually I wouldn't ask, you know, but for this 20th anniversary, we're all remembering anyway. We're all remembering privately, so we might as well say it out loud as a second rough draft of history, if you will, so people who come after us will know. 646-435-7280. And in the spirit of making our coverage this morning personal, and not abstract, I'm actually going to begin with a little bit of my own 9-11 story, because as some of you know, the WNYC studios were located at that time in the Manhattan Municipal Building, just six blocks from the Trade Center, and my producers and I were there in, our, in the station getting ready for our 10 a.m. show, and we literally heard and saw what was happening right out our windows, and were among those evacuated from Lower Manhattan. We were working on the 27th floor of a government building, and the station was freaked on our behalf that we could be the next target. And so they got most of us the heck out. But while I and my team were evacuated, multiple WNYC news reporters rushed toward the Burning Trade Center to cover the story, in the 9 o'clock hour, we'll look back with WNYC's Beth Fertig 
who was one of those reporters. But joining me first is a guest who is very special to me for her work off the air and is known to many of you for her work on the air. Nula McGovern was the senior producer of my weekday morning show back on September 11th, 2001. She now lives in London, and many of you know her as a BBC host. They call it a presenter over there. On the BBC World Service, she's been heard frequently on WNYC, in the hours that we carry the BBC broadcasts. Hi, Nula. And first Hi, of all, Brian. first of all, how weird to have you as a guest from across the ocean and on this of all days, my good friend. How is the BBC marking the anniversary today? Well, first off, let me just say how good it is to hear your voice. And I know I'm echoing probably listeners um, that are all out there as well feeling the exact same way. It's like... Um, it is. You are a companion, Brian, and a comfort, I have to say. And I'm sure so many people feeling like that on, on that day and on this day, too. Um, for us, we have at the BBC maybe two tracks going on, if you want to think about it in that way, that we are looking, of course, at those events uh, uh, very closely that happened across the United States and uh, whether it's in, in New York or indeed the Pentagon or, or Shanksville, but also um, a, a big part of the discussion is 20 years on from uh, the U.S.-led coalition into Afghanistan. And now that the U.S. and foreign forces have withdrawn, uh, what's happening in Afghanistan now? You yes. know, I was just reading uh, before I came that my colleague there, Sekunder Kamani, he has been speaking uh, to shoppers on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 in Kabul, and some didn't know what he was talking about. Mm. And that mm -hmm. really shocked me. But what we're trying to do is uh, both, of course, uh, remember this incredibly solemn day for Americans, but also the ramifications because of the response to that day. And I think we yeah. knew, Brian, that day that things were changing. I guess so. And let me just warn you and our listeners that in three minutes. We're going to take a break from this conversation, and then we'll continue with Nula McGovern um, to go live to the ceremony, listen to some of the readings of the names and the first moment of silence at 846. But let me tell the listeners my first memories of that horrible morning, and then you give us yours from the same moments. I was in my office across the hall from yours. I did not have a window on the Trade Center. You did. And I heard this monstrous explosion that I had no idea what it was. And I thought to myself, what was that, a sonic boom? But before I could even think that whole thought, you shouted to me from across the hall because your office had that window looking right out at the towers. Do you remember that first moment, what you I saw, what you thought? I do, because I was staring out the window. It was a small office, and the Twin Towers were looking very beautiful. They were kind of glinting, glistening, uh, you know, against that blue sky that we often talk about from that day. And just in front of my eyes, something exploded. And at first, I didn't believe my eyes, but I thought it was a bomb or, or something or a fire. I had no idea it was a plane. And uh, I imagine I probably roared your name pretty quickly, Brian. Um, and called down to the newsroom. Signe Peck was there. They were on the 25th floor. And I said, a bomb has gone off or something. And I remember they're going, what? And it was trying to get that realization across to something that you'd witnessed with your eyes, but couldn't really believe it. But we're trying to put it across to others 
via a phone line that something really big had just happened. And do you remember the uncertainty? By the way, you said, you remember, you probably shouted my name really loud, and that is my second audio memory of 9-11. First was the crash itself and wondering what it was, but then immediately you shouted, at least as I recall it today, Brian, the Trade Center. And we could see the flames and we could see the smoke from the first moment when I came into your office, right? Yeah, and I remember, I actually have a vision of you, Brian, looking out the window. I do remember you processing it and uh, you had an you had a phrase something like as if like a giant hand had grabbed the top out like it was like scooped out the top of uh, the tower uh, and I remember you immediately kind of registering what had happened and I think I was trying to think about uh, also the newsroom and, and the people downstairs as well yes. or how we and were going we to try do? and turn this around we're going to join the ceremony now. I believe they haven't started reading the names yet, but they just sang the national anthem and they're going to take that first moment of silence at 8.46. Here we go. moment of silence. And there is the first the moment, moment of silence, silence we just shared from when the first plane struck the first tower at the World Trade Center. How weird to take silence on the radio. Some of you just tuning in might think, oh, where's the station? The station isn't there. But we've done this. Every September 11th since, we do take those moments of silence on the radio. Maybe on the radio it's even more poignant than in some other settings because it's such a a no-no, such a cardinal sin in radio 
to have silence, but to be listening to silence on the radio is maybe important at moments like these. Uh, the next one is coming up at 9.03 as we continue with my own personal 9-11 recollection to begin this portion of our coverage with the senior producer of my show from back then, Nula McGovern, who many of you know as a BBC World Service presenter these days. Nula, we all think of the collapse of the towers now, but, uh, you know, because of course that's when most Mm -hmm. of the victims died. But there was also that early gruesome period of death and confusion. And at first, a small number of floors near the top of the tower, and only a small number of floors near the top of that first tower, burst into flames and smoke. You were just describing the scene before the moment of silence. And there was the eerie sight, as I recall it, of the white Trade Center Tower against the blue sky. Everybody talks about what a beautiful day it was, and it was Mm -hmm. a totally blue sky day with a ring of orange fire and black smoke around those several floors, but still with most of the white tower below it and some above it appearing as if unaffected from the outside. And I want to play just 30 seconds of the very first mention of the scene on WNYC from our morning edition host at the time, Mark Hyland. Good morning. I'm Mark Hyland. There has been an explosion at the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan. The upper floors of the Northern Tower at the World Trade Center has experienced an explosion. There is smoke coming from the tower on the northern side of the Northern Tower. That smoke billowing out of the building in the upper floors. We don't have any word as to what might have caused this explosion this morning, but again... An explosion at the World Trade WNYC's Mark Hyland with the first report of an explosion. They called it an explosion. Didn't know if it was a plane even mm-hmm. yet at that time at the World Trade Center. And Nula, I remember that, that as you were saying before, we didn't know what to do, including whether to throw out a pretty special show that we had planned that day to begin with. Do you remember that? Uh, yes, I do. And, you know, the reason we were all in so early, it was uh, a mayoral primary in the city. And so we were kind of in one mindset of, on a track. This is what we're going to do. And then, of course, uh, trying to understand what had happened. And I think maybe it says something about human nature that we wanted to think that it was the least serious thing and obviously incredibly serious when you have a, a one of the towers uh, on fire but I, I don't think terror attack was in our minds with that very first incident as some people were wondering could it have been something that exploded by accident could it have been uh, a helicopter uh, accident you know there was these uh, stories before the second uh, hit I should say that I think we were grappling to try and understand, but not with the horror of realization that came later. That's right. And listeners, if you weren't here, you probably don't know this. And if you were here, you may not even remember, because it seems like a footnote now, Nula just mentioned it, 
September 11, 2001 was mayoral primary day in New York City. All the other local offices, too. But just like we had this June with Eric Adams and everybody, it was a big deal for the city. September 11, 2001 was already going to be a big deal. Rudy Giuliani was term limited and getting ready to leave. And we were going to have on our 10 a.m. show all four of the leading Democratic candidates that day for five-minute Election Day closing arguments. The candidates were Mark Green, Alan Hevesy, Fernando Ferrer, and Peter Vallone. That was Peter Vallone Sr. His son has been in the city council more recently. And for a while after the attacks, I wondered if al-Qaeda chose that day in part because it was a big election day in New York City, and they were going to disrupt an act of democracy in progress and get extra satisfaction from doing that in addition to killing all those people. Uh, and Nula, I don't think there was any evidence of that, but it was a thought that I've had a number of times. I, I, the thing, I think we thought then, Brian, should, like, still thinking that things were going to, in, in some way, follow uh, some sort of, of pattern that we would remain in that building, etc. We were thinking about getting each of the candidates to comment on what had happened that morning, but thinking still that it was one explosion in one tower and trying to figure out how we were going to change things around, how we were going to cover it, which now seems, you know, so yeah. far removed from what right. was about to that, come. That, that we could incorporate it into this yes. regular show that we were going to yes. do. Let's take our first caller, Gabri on Staten Island. You're on WNYC. Hello, Gabri. Thank you so much for calling in this morning. Hi, Brian. Um, I'm actually surprised I'm on because I call off and I never get on. So thank you and uh, condolences to the world for this day. Um, I was on my way to Manhattan from Staten Island. I live near the ferry. I was late. I normally would walk to the World Trade Center, uh, buy a coffee, and then take the train there. Um, so right when we were leaving the ferry, with the ferry, um, we knew something had happened. We thought there was a fire in the tower. So we were standing on the deck, we meaning the people, um, and I was with a friend. And we saw it in a bar we were there. We saw the plane flying over, over the ferry, over the water to another plane towards the World Trade Center. And I was like, why is a plane going? We were like, why is a plane going directly to that? And then um, the ferry kept going and it hit, as we all know now. And um, You saw the impact. Yes, I saw the impact. The ferry didn't dock. We came back and we we saw going over the ferry into the towers. Um, and we almost docked. We didn't dock. We turned back. We saw the people running. I saw the people running. And then the whole very slow way back on the ferry, uh, we saw the scenes unfold. And once we docked, um, I sat on the benches and eventually saw the tower go down and from Staten Island it looked like this big mushroom hmm. and I started running thinking it was World War Three because it reminded me of Hiroshima. Gabri, thank, thank you so much for that horrible memory but for having the courage to share it this morning. 
Rob in Chelsea, you're on WNYC. Hi, Rob. Hey, Brian. Um, and your guests, I forget her name. Um, Nula McGovern. Yeah, what, what, what a sad day. But um, do you want to hear, hear my story? Yeah, please. Okay. So um, I stayed at my mom's the night before, the Monday night, and I took the train in from uh, Bronxville, and it was supposed to get in at about 8.40. So, like, um, somebody on the train got a call, and they said, a kamikaze pilot shot, you know, hit the trade center. So we thought, you know, like maybe you know, five passengers. You know, we didn't think it was that big of a whoop. Yeah. You, yeah, you, were, on, you were on a metro, just to be clear, you were on a metro north train heading to Grand Central, yeah. right? Correct. And so when I got out of the Grand Central and walked onto 42nd Street, and, you know, my office was on 31st and 6th, um, so I saw the crowd starting to, as I'm walking towards Fifth Avenue. I mean, all four blocks, all four sides were hundreds of people looking south with their mouths hanging open. Like, what the hell is going on? And so I kept on walking down Fifth Avenue, seeing the progression, got up to my office um, on the 21st floor, and we had a really good, good view. Building one hadn't collapsed yet, but um, as far as memory serves, um, plane number two came in and yeah, and swept the second tower. Um, and and then what know, did you do? Did you evacuate? I don't think the trains were running back to Westchester. No, they weren't. Um, did two things. Realized one, uh, we're under attack, and that this is war. Two called my family. Um, three, my boss called from LA, who got into the agency early. You know, said, "Oh, we're next." Yeah, you know, blah blah. But kind of laughing about it, I'm like, you know, don't give yourself that much credit. This is New York. Yeah, I, <laughs> and, I, I, I hear you, Rob. And I'm going to leave it there. And thank you very much. I think so many people can relate to that experience, doing their regular jobs, whatever they were, in Manhattan at that morning, and then looking gobsmacked toward the trade center from wherever they were and then not knowing how they could get home because all the trains and everything stopped running. This is WNYC FM HD and AM New York, WNJT FM 88.1 Trenton, WNJP 88.5 Sussex, WNJY 89.3 Netcong, and WNJO 90.3 Toms River. We are New York and New Jersey Public Radio with special coverage and our observance of the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Nula McGovern with us just for another few minutes, who is the senior producer of my weekday morning radio show at that time, now a BBC World Service presenter. You may have heard her on our station via the BBC many times. And, and Nula, in our last couple of minutes together, we've been talking about the first plane and the aftermath of that. Then at 9.03 which we're about to commemorate with a moment of silence, the second plane hit. And that's when everybody knew this was no accident. We were under attack. And again, I just heard the explosion from across the hall. Your office had a window looking right at the Trade Center. Do you remember what you saw at your 27th floor window that faced you know, the towers at that, at that point? At that, at that point, Brian, I had gone down to the 25th floor and... Um, they were, Mark Highland, as you mentioned, was on air. Signe Peck was there as well. 
who was producing and uh, the studio just had a small window at the back. So I wasn't looking out at that. What I remember is just hearing it as well and a very vivid sense of fear permeating the studio. Um, and then I must have gone where we had a little newsroom where there were uh, windows but that we went out and then saw what had happened. But that was after the fact. It was the sound that just made it very clear uh, that this was an attack or this was deliberate uh, at this point and that it was no accident or, you know, something that had gone awry that morning uh, and that we needed to uh, really start thinking about what were we going to do next. So we were evacuated. And that walk is one of my vivid memories. We got out and walked up First Avenue with other members of our team. And we're north of 14th Street before the first tower collapsed at 9.59. Do you remember that we had a radio and we heard that news on the radio of the tower collapsing practically right behind us? Yes. And I remember being worried that it would fall, like not collapse in on itself, but that it would fall over, you know, and I was trying to think like how many blocks could that possibly go? But then, of course, we could see it was collapsing in in on itself, as has been talked about uh, many times since about why and how that happened. But I do remember, Brian, I think I must have been so... Um, I don't know, not thinking straight or whatever, that at that stage, the severity or the gravity of that happening, I don't think hit me properly until later. I'm not sure that it hit anybody properly until later, except maybe those who were physically there. WNYC's Beth Fertig, who was physically there, will be one of our two next guests coming up in just a couple of minutes after the next moment of silence. I want to thank... My senior producer at the time, Nula McGovern, uh, who has gone on to be so successful, Nula, I'm so proud of you, by the way, uh, as a global presenter uh, through the BBC World Service. Thank you for giving us some time on this day and remembering those horrible events along with me. It, it was good to be with you, Brian. And of course, I learned from the master being up close. Thank you so much for having me on today. And my condolences to our, to our listeners that lost. And now we'll rejoin the reading of the name ceremony outside the Trade Center and stay with it for the moment of silence at 9.03 that commemorates when the second plane struck the second tower. Stephen Elliot Belson. Paul M. Benedetti. Denise Lenore Benedetto. Brian Craig Bennett. Eric L. Bennett. Oliver Bennett. Margaret L. Benson. Dominic J. Berardi. James Patrick Berger. Stephen Howard Berger. John P. Bergen. Alvin Bergson. Daniel David Bergstein. Graham Andrew Berkeley. Michael J. Berkeley. Donna M. Bernards. David W. Bernard.
May God bless our fallen brothers and sisters, their families, their friends, and their loved ones. He says, I'll see you in my dreams. This is Bruce Springsteen talking. seeming without end The days go on But I'll remember you, my friend And though you're gone In my heart's been emptied, it seems I'll see you in my dreams I got here by my bed All your favorite records And all the books that you read And though my soul Feels like it's been split at the seams I'll see you David M. Beret. David Shelby Berry. Joseph John Berry. William Reed Bethke. Yanene Bichu. 
Timothy D. Betterly. Carolyn Mayer Bug. Edward Frank B.A. Paul Michael Baer. Anil Tahilram Bervani. Bella J. Bukhan. Shimmy D. Beagleason. Peter Alexander Bielfeld. William G. Biggert. Brian Eugene Bilcher. Mark Bingham. The reading of the name ceremony outside the Trade Center, ongoing, with the practically 3,000 names of those killed on 9-11. And we didn't expect to hear Bruce Springsteen, but there he was after the 9:03 moment of silence, speaking a little bit and then playing. One of my memories from the year after 9-11 is that Bruce Springsteen put out one of the first really meaningful works of 9-11-related art, his album, The Rising. So very fitting that he was down there today, and I'm glad we got to hear his contribution. This is our special coverage and observance on WNYC of the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. We'll continue in a minute. It's our special coverage on WNYC. Really, it's our observance of the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. I'm Brian Lehrer with you until 11 o'clock this morning. At about 10 o'clock, we'll talk to a retired firefighter who has helped others who survived the attack. In the reading of the names, you know, they include the people killed on the day of, of course, but not the many people who have died prematurely from 9-11-related illness, like after working on the recovery effort with all that toxic material in the air. More than 100,000 people have filed for benefits with the 9-11 Victims' Compensation Fund. Did you know that? Even the governor at the time, George Pataki, got lung disease that they say is from his presence on a number of days after the attack, and so many others have stories like that. So we honor them, too. We'll talk to a retired firefighter in about an hour. Right now, two journalists who covered the story on 9-11-2001. WNYC's own Beth Fertig is one. As I and most of the staff were being evacuated uptown, like in the story I was telling before, Beth, in her role as news reporter, went toward the towers. Rose Arce is with us, too. She covered the attacks at the time as a producer for CNN here in New York. These days, she is executive producer at Soldad O'Brien Productions. Hi, Beth and Rose. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Beth, hello, as always. And Rose, welcome back to WNYC. Thank you, Brian. Hi. And listeners, once again, I want to invite you into this observance. Where were you 20 years ago today? What's your most vivid memory of September 11th, 2001? Call in and say it out loud if you would like to at 646-435-7280. Say it so people who come after us or were not here then will know. Beth, can you walk us through how you first learned of the attack and how you came to cover it at the scene of the crime, the scene of the tragedy? Yeah, uh Earlier in the show, I believe you referenced what was supposed to happen on September 11th in some alternative universe, which was the New York City primary election. Uh, Rudy Giuliani was a term-limited mayor, and there was going to be a primary that evening, and it was presumed that the winner of the Democratic primary would become the city's next mayor. And I was sleeping late 
because I was a political reporter assigned to cover that election that evening. And then my news director at the time woke me just before 9 a.m. to tell me that the World Trade Center had been struck by a plane and they needed me to cover this fire. Um, And I was very stunned and I was still thinking I have to cover this election. So I said, can't you get somebody else to do that? Because... I had I had envisioned it must be some little propeller plane type of accident, but he was very urgent and he said no no you, I I need you there and he said he had already sent somebody to the World Trade Center I believe he said he he sent Andrea Bernstein who was on our staff at the time, and he needed me to find the mayor and the police commissioner, and I was living on Thompson Street in Greenwich Village, and when I ran downstairs with my equipment I could have this view from my street, which was exactly one mile north of the World Trade Center towers. I used to love seeing them when I would come home at night. And everybody was in the street looking at the two towers burning against that brilliant blue sky that we've all described and the silver of the towers and the black and the orange and the smoke coming out of them. And people were just stunned looking at this. And I started panicking, thinking, oh, my God, this is huge. I have to get there, and I have to find the mayor or the police commissioner or both of them. And I probably took the last number six local train to um, the city hall area where our radio station was located at the time in the Manhattan Municipal Building. And I got out with all this stuff fluttering in the air, and people lined up at payphones. And I ran to police plaza, and the police officers outside told me the building was being evacuated. I went to City Hall, where I was told the building was being evacuated. And an officer told me that the mayor had gone to his command center, which at the time was at Seven World Trade. The Office of Emergency Management had been moved there a few years earlier against the advice of many experts who said this is across the street from a terrorist target that was already bombed in 1993. Why would you put your command center there? And I said to the officer, is the mayor really there? Come on, there's no way. He went there. And they said, yes, he did. There's a lot of falling glass. Be careful. You didn't hear it from me. So I tried to get there, and I got to the southern edge of City Hall Park, and at that point I was about three blocks away from the Twin Towers. I only looked up once. I was so intent on getting there. There was a crowd of people that was filling Park Row and Lower Broadway, which is also stunning to think that you could be blocks away from this scene and people are just watching. But you feel this false sense of security sometimes when you're surrounded Mm. by so many of your fellow New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. And I looked up and I saw the South Tower was starting to melt. I remember having that weird I don't know, I I got that feeling as I looked up at it that something strange was happening. But I kept plowing ahead, and then a police officer, a female police officer, stopped me from going any further. I had my press credentials and my microphone, and I said, I have to get there. I I need to get there. I'm a reporter for WNYC. And she said, I'm doing this to save your life. And just as she said that, the the South Tower collapsed, and I turned on my recording equipment, and I recorded the sounds of it, and people fleeing, and then I started narrating as I fled, too, and I spent the next couple of hours downtown. I ran into Marianne McCune, another reporter from our team, who had also shown up just around then. I ran into her outside the Manhattan Municipal Building, and we spent that morning, because her cell phone was working, most were not, we got on the air with our morning anchor, and we brought 
survivors, witnesses, all kinds of people to the phone to Mm. relay their accounts and describe what we were seeing. And later that day, I went to the mayor's first press conference at the police academy, which is where he gave it in the East 20s. Um, And I walked there with Lower Manhattan, just a scene of black smoke. And and Rose Arce from CNN, um, how close were you when the first tower collapsed? I should say you were with CNN at the time. Um, how close were you when the first tower collapsed, and did you also have to run for your life? I was actually in the apartment building of a guy named Jim Hubrex with his uh, two kids, a three-year-old and a six-year-old, and we had been standing on his, um, I guess, his balcony. He was on the top floor. Um, I guess he had the penthouse of this building that was just, just you know, a couple blocks up the street when it collapsed and we had been watching because people had started to jump and there was a sense of panic in the apartment with these little kids who were watching this and saying what's going on what's going on and I you know I'll I'll never forget that right before the collapse of that first tower Jim who was sort of struggling to protect his children from what was unfolding had turned to his little girl and said those are birds honey to to try to calm her down Mm mm-hmm and so we were already in this in this incredible emotional state when there was this incredible roar, this horrible, horrible rumble, and you just saw this thing pancake on itself. It, it was almost like watching a slow motion sandcastle toppling, you know, into dust. And we all sort of ran inside, and the debris was hitting the windows, and. You know, and and Jim was like, "I got to get out of here." I mean, he actually threw the keys at me and just in an instant vanished. I don't even remember him closing the door of the apartment. Um, And I thought to myself, we're all going to die in this apartment because this is just too huge. And it was unclear what was happening. It was unclear whether the building was collapsing or whether it had exploded or whether there had been another attack. You know, we were all gripped with this sense of, of like, what's going to happen next, right? I mean, we had this feeling that somehow a war had begun. And the first, you know, shot fired in this war had been this airplane. And so what was going to happen next? Where were the tanks and the ships? And was that a bomb? And just all these thoughts racing through your head, um, you know, laced with panic and fear. Rachel in Jersey City. You're on WNYC. Rachel, thank you for so, so much for calling in on this day. Hi, good morning. It's a very somber morning, and I've been listening since you've come on, Brian, so thank you for hosting this this morning. I live in Jersey City. I am an educator. I was working at the time at a charter school about two blocks off the Hudson River waterfront, directly across from the financial district, and my classroom was in a portable trailer. I had a student, it was right at the beginning of the school year, and I had a little girl come in late, and she said I was late because there was a lot of traffic. One of the towers is on fire. My mommy said um, a helicopter or a plane hit the tower. And I said, okay, come in. And, you know, I was a little unnerved by that, but I brought her in. I got the children situated, um, and that was probably uh, in, uh, around 850, 855. Um, and then... We heard a crash, the second plane, um, and I stepped outside onto the wooden plank 
because um, I was outside the main building. Um, and the first thing I saw was our uh, custodian. Um, I get emotional thinking about it, actually. Um, a very religious man, quiet man, uh, on his knees with his rosary, praying. Mm-hmm. And I had a sense something is very wrong here. This doesn't feel like something arbitrary or an accident. And I walked down the little wooden ramp to be able to see to the waterfront. And I could just see again against the blue sky, the smoke and the flames and sirens and just a sense of panic on our side of the river. And because I was in a part of the building that was not attached to a foundation, we actually could feel the collapse. It was like an earthquake. Like we Mm. could feel the rumbling things shaking, um, just locking down before we really knew what a lockdown was, keeping all the children calm and safe. Um, And then we started to see through the morning as the ferries were bringing people to the Jersey side of the river, just a single file, just on ongoing single file people coming off the ferries, just walking west, you know, some without, you know, partially, you know, covered in dust, one shoe, no bags heads down it reminded me uh just watching this procession of like old holocaust videos of just mm. people just kind of moving somewhere unknown uh slowly um and we were at the school until every child was accounted for we did have many families that were impacted um directly we had a large immigrant population of students and we had um, some families who lost multiple family members who were kitchen workers at windows on the world um and you know several other families impacted parents who who were lost in the attacks. So Rachel, thank you so so much for such uh, horrible but such vivid memories that you have. I wonder if from your perch at the Jersey City waterfront, you were able to see what Rose Arce referred to a minute ago as you know it had to be explained away uh, to a kid as oh those are birds flying. Um, it was one of the memories that people at WNYC had looking from our windows six blocks away, people actually jumping from the Trade Center because they were in that position of they were either going to get burned in their offices and die that way or take the risk of, of jumping out. And what a horrific thing to have witnessed with anyone's own eyes. Did you also see that? We could not see it from my trailer, so in that regard, I was grateful because I, the children were not being exposed to that. They were young. It was second graders, but I was able to, you know, we could glimpse it from, so that when I came down that, like, wooden, you know, kind of walkway up to the classroom, um, you know, I was able to see, um, you know, it was a little hard to determine what that was, like if Mm -hmm. it was debris, if it was people. Um, But I did have a colleague whose husband worked at Merrill Lynch and he was caught, you know, emailing her and saying like, people are jumping out of windows. Um, So there was a sense that we knew that was happening, though we didn't have a direct view of that. And for that, I'm, for that, I'm grateful. I guess so, because it was uh, traumatic enough. Yeah. With the children. That's right. That's right. Rachel, th- Rachel in Jersey City, thank you so much for contributing to our coverage and observance this morning, which will continue in a minute.
This is our special coverage and observance of the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks here on WNYC. I'm Brian Lehrer. We'll continue to take the moments of silence from the World Trade Center site. We'll continue with various guests and your calls with your memories that day at 646-435-7280. Still with us are WNYC's Beth Fertig, still with the station. She was a news reporter who ran to the Trade Towers as other people from the station were being evacuated away from them that day. And Rose Arce, who was a producer for CNN at the time, now executive producer with Soldad O'Brien Productions. Rose, I'm so glad that that last caller mentioned the fact that many of the families who had kids in her class where she taught were immigrant families and that they had lost some people at Windows on the World because there was so much coverage of the Wall Street people, the finance sector people killed in the attacks that day, and also, of course, the first responders who rushed into the burning building and would wind up getting killed in the collapse. Almost forgotten was that any building that houses a lot of mostly white professional class workers is also usually staffed by more working class building service employees, more likely to be workers of color. And one of the groups in this case was the restaurant staff at Windows on the World, the top floor eatery in the Trade Center. Did you cover them at the time? And do you think there are certain forgotten victims of 9-11 along those lines? Oh, God, yes. Um, There were so many people out there who reached out to myself and to CNN's Maria Hinojosa, who I worked with at the time, uh, you know, who said, my husband, my brother, my, you know, relative was in the buildings and he's not on any lists. I mean, they had, there's, there was this feeling out there that there must be lists of the dead or the potential dead and that people were looking for them and they were afraid that nobody, um, you know, was ever going to find their person. Uh, there was a, a guy that I particularly remember um, that Maria and I covered, this guy, Moises Rivas. Uh, he was 29 years old. He was a chef at Windows of the World, and he was able to get a call out immediately following the attack. Um, you know, and his, his stepdaughter answered the phone, and they had this exchange, um, you know, and, and he said, you know, that he loved her. I mean, it was... It was just like all the other calls, but somehow these people had been forgotten in the rush to sort of paint the World Trade Center as this place of high finance and this world, you know, epicenter of government, of, uh, of uh, commerce, etc. But here was this guy who was a chef who was cooking that day and who couldn't get out. And so one of the things that Maria and I did was we focused a lot on this population. And as we did more and more reporting, we realized how many more of these kind of almost invisible people were being lost. And Beth, I wound up anchoring the coverage that day from about 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. after we were evacuated uptown. Uh, We did it from the NPR studios on East 42nd Street. And I have a memory of you informing me, I think you handed me a piece of paper with the information, that 343 firefighters were believed dead. At least that's the number that sticks in my head, and I know that was the final count. Do you remember learning something like that that day? I do, Brian. It was was really awful and mind-blowing because I was 
at the mayor's first press conference at about 2 o'clock that afternoon. I had walked there from Lower Manhattan after watching both towers collapse. Um, And at that first press conference, if you remember, we had not heard from any real authority figures by then. President Bush had been evacuated, and I believe he was in the air for several hours that day until they could get him to a secure location. And that first press conference, all of the reporters were at... um, in a big auditorium or a big con- a big room at the police academy. And it was all the people I had seen from the New York Press Corps um, and the national press who are usually in New York. And we did not know ourselves what was going on. There was so much confusion, and it's very, very difficult to be a reporter amidst so much confusion. For example, when I was watching the second tower collapse and I was live on the air with Marianne McCune, our anchor was asking us, what's happening? Have, can you see? And I'm surrounded by smoke and debris, and I said, I can't even see if the second tower has completely come down. It, you don't want to relay any misinformation. So in this vacuum where we didn't know what had caused the buildings to come down, nobody was a structural engineer. <laughs> we mm. didn't know about steel melting. Mm. Nobody knew what was in the air. There were rumors of other explosions. We were all gathered at the police academy trying to sort out among ourselves what questions we wanted to ask of the first officials who were going to brief us. And that was when um, I remember asking Mayor Giuliani what caused the buildings to come down, if he knew, and he said there was no evidence of a bomb or anything like that. It was the, the impact of the planes and the melting steel. And Thomas Von Essen, the fire commissioner, talked about losing a very large number of his firefighters. And as I left the building to come to NPR to join you there, Brian, I was in an elevator, I believe, with Thomas Von Essen, or somehow we left the building together at the same time. And I approached him and I said, I am so sorry. He looked ashen. He just looked so grief-stricken and stunned. And I said, may I ask, do you know how so many of the firefighters died? And he said, they had gone to a command center in the trade towers, and you know they had normal command centers there for in case of any emergency and to bring them to safety he created another command center outside on west street and they all went over there he was trying to get them out of the building but then the building collapsed and killed them so Mm. that was our first acknowledgement of how many firefighters were lost that day that it could be hundreds so that's probably what I relayed to you. And I also remember making, trying to call the station so I could be on the air and join all of you giving the account from that first press conference. And there were no working phones. My cell phone wasn't working. Everybody was grabbing any phone they can. And I took a fax machine phone at the police, command, at the police cadet training center. I took this fax machine, and I took the phone off, and that's how I called uh, WNYC to yeah. say what was happening. Um. Rose Arce, we have about two minutes left in this segment, and I want to thank you for joining our WNYC coverage today, and Beth, of course, you too. But Rose, as a last word for now, before we go back to the ceremony for a few minutes for the next moment of silence, I read the piece that you wrote a few years ago about living in Greenwich Village at the time and then teaching your daughter about 9-11. How old was she? And did you keep living in the village after the attack? I mean, I lived on 105th Street at the time, and at least when I went home from work every day, 
even though the radio station was right near the Trade Center, I felt like I got out of that pressure cooker when I got off the subway at night. What, what was it like for you with a little kid, and what was it like living so close to the scene? Well, you know, my daughter was born in 2005, and I think that every day that I walked her to school, um, when she got a little bit older, I would walk by this sort of magical corner that we've all seen at 6th Avenue, and I guess it's around 11th Street, where you look down and you used to see the two towers up there. And, you know, I would always sort of avert my glaze, my, my glaze that because, you know, it wasn't just September 11th. I think for so many of us, there were years upon years upon years of looking downtown and seeing that hole in the sky and just saying, oh, my God, what happened and what will become of us? And yeah. trying to convey that to her in a way that was emotion-free and that, you know, took that piece of history and gave it meaning was challenging then and it's challenging now. Because, you know, even today as we remember September 11th and the horror show that was that day and the people that were lost and the emotions and the firefighters, there is everything that happened since then. And the weight of that is as great the wars, the, the terrible, terrible things that have happened, um, you know, the feeling of helplessness, uh, the coming together and then the coming apart. And, you know, there are lessons in all of that for us, and there are certainly lessons in that for our children. Rose Arce, now with Sold Out O'Brien Productions. Again, thank you so much, Beth Fertig, as always. Thank you for your reporting. And today, thank you for having the, the fortitude and the courage to reminisce about 9-11-2001. Now we'll rejoin the reading of the name ceremony outside the Trade Center and stay with it for the moment of silence at 937 that commemorates when one of the hijacked planes crashed into the Pentagon. And then we have a very special guest. Gloria Pocasangre de Barrera. Tara E. Debeck. James D. Debinier. Anna M. Debin. James V. de Blase, Jr. Jacerel Malabuyak de Chavez. And my little brother, Walter A. Matuza, Jr. We love you and miss you every day, Walter. Mom and Sal are still dancing in the kitchen. Last night, is fact, 94 and 92. You would be so proud of your boys. Walter... Jesse and Nico. Denise has become superwoman. What she did for these boys and herself, she's going to college now, Walt. Your boys would make you so proud. They each have a bit of your personality, and you'll never be missed. Love you, bro. And my father, Daniel J. Brethel, captain of Ladder 24, FDNY. We love and miss you every day.
My name is Anthula Katsimatidis. My brother John worked on the 104th floor of Tower One. When I look back on these last 20 years, I find myself thinking about September 12th and everything that happened after that. When thousands of us became members of a club that we never signed up for, with no idea of what to do next, except to cry, right? But then something unexpected happened. An unlimited amount of kindness kept pouring in to each of us, from friends and strangers. The whole country seemed to put its arm around us. And that lent me just enough strength to get up the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that. And I realized that all this kindness and giving reminded me of my brother. My larger than life, live out loud, big brother, who loved to make people laugh. And he was always there whenever something was needed. I loved and admired those things about him, and I began to emulate them. And it made me feel like I was picking up a baton that he had left for me. I started working with the 9-11 families, helping them navigate the emotional process of thinking about the memorial and connecting their concerns with the staff and designers and officials. John used to say, Thula, you gotta have fun. You gotta be daring with your life. And with that, I discovered a zest for acting. It was a new direction for me, a way to express creatively all that I felt inside, a way for me to share stories. Everything I was doing gave me the feeling that my brother Johnny was with me. You got this, kid. It takes a really long time to figure out who you are and who you were meant to be. And all of us had to find new ways to get there. But if I had given up, oh, oh boy, my brother would have been so mad at me. (laughs) His loss helped shape me into who I am today. And I know it's made me a better person. I came here, yes, with tears, but also a really happy heart to say that over the last 20 years, I have learned to live out loud just the way my brother taught me. It's our 20th anniversary 
commemoration, observance, and special coverage here on WNYC. Right now it's music from Lower Manhattan. We'll just listen to a few more seconds of this and then bring on a special guest. So at this moment, 20 years ago, the country is realizing it wasn't just the trade towers. The country is under attack on multiple fronts, and who knows how many more to come. So what if you do, if you're the new senator from New York, who's just taken office earlier that same year, and you're also the former first lady of the United States? With us for a few minutes now is that senator and former first lady, who went on to be the Secretary of State and the 2016 Democratic presidential nominee, Hillary Clinton. Secretary Clinton, thank you for some time on this occasion. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you, Brian. It's always good to be with you. Do you remember how you first heard about the World Trade Center attacks and where you were? I do. I was um, at uh, my house in Washington getting ready to leave to go to the Senate uh, to attend a hearing that day about education. And as I was literally walking uh, out the door, um, I got called back and uh, some people who were there working with me said, look what happened, something really weird happened. And we didn't know what to make of it. Uh, we at initially thought, as so many did, that it was some bizarre, terrible accident. I got in my car. I started, uh, you know, driving uh, to uh, the Capitol. And, you know, as uh, I was driving, I was on the phone talking to my chief of staff and others who were uh, at the office uh, waiting uh, for me. And uh, then all of a sudden, they told me that uh, another plane had flown into the South Tower shortly after 9 o'clock. And it just then seemed obviously not a coincidence that we were under attack. I proceeded to the Senate office building to meet my staff who were being evacuated from uh, all the Senate offices. I met there with my chief of staff and my other leadership and we made sure we had everybody uh, accounted for, and then uh, the leadership of my Senate office went to a nearby home of uh, someone we knew to set up a kind of makeshift office so that we could stay in touch and uh, try to figure out what was happening. And I was then told by uh, the Secret Service and Capitol uh, Police that I should get out of the area because there was a very legitimate concern, as we now know, uh, that the Capitol would also be attacked. <clears throat> so I headed back uh, to my house, picking up people, taking people with me uh, so that we could also be together and working the phones. And then that's what I began to do, calling, of course, you know, my colleagues in uh, the Congress, starting with uh, Senator Schumer and others, 
uh, calling the governor's office, the mayor's office, beginning to gather what in, whatever information I could. Al-Qaeda had staged several attacks against Americans overseas while your husband was still president at the Kenya and Tanzania U.S. embassies in 1998 and the USS Cole in 2000. And there was that famous item in a presidential daily brief that President Bush had gotten that summer of 2001 titled, Bin Laden Determined to Strike in U.S., was that shared with you as senator from New York at the time? And how concerned were you about that or that bin Laden's targets of choice might be in the city? That was not shared with me. But, of course, as you know, the World Trade Center had been already uh, attacked by uh, a bombing uh, a- episode uh, earlier in 1993. And there was a, a global manhunt to track down uh, those responsible for that. And then after the bombings of our embassies, uh, there was another uh, focused effort to try to find bin Laden, to try to, you know, track him down, because by that time, certainly in my husband's administration, uh, there was a a growing uh, belief that he was uh, behind the attacks in Kenya and Tanzania. And then the attack on the USS Cole off the you know, coast of, of Yemen, uh, it, it wasn't attributed by the FBI or the intelligence community to bin Laden until after the Clinton administration ended. But my husband made two attempts, uh, one in Sudan and, and one in Afghanistan with uh, missile attacks to try to uh, attack bin Laden and his lieutenants based on the best intelligence that we had at that time. But we were not, uh, I'm speaking for myself, I was not, uh, as a senator from New York, uh, told anything about uh, the intelligence and uh, the daily report given to President Bush. It's sad that the pullout from Afghanistan had as much bloodshed and people left behind as it did, even as it was successful in evacuating a lot of people and time to coincide with this anniversary. What were you thinking as you watched that, knowing today was coming up? I had very complicated feelings, Brian. Um, I think the die was cast when uh, then-President Trump Uh, made the agreement that he did with the Taliban, and I thought it was woefully inadequate, starting with the very uh, basic uh, commitment that we had thought since 2001, uh, that the Taliban would cut ties with al-Qaeda, that it would uh, guarantee that uh, its uh, areas under its control, and now, of course, the entire country of Afghanistan would not be used as staging areas uh, to stage attacks against us and and our friends and allies. But once uh, Trump made the agreement that uh, uh, it would be the end of our involvement as of May 1st, uh, there was a very clear uh, understanding by the Taliban, certainly, based on you know, my experience as senator and then as secretary of state, that since we had a date certain to leave, they could begin to, uh, through intimidation, coercion, assassination, extortion, 
uh, undermine uh, the Afghan uh, military, the Afghan government. And so when President Biden inherited that agreement, and also it coincided with his strong conviction that uh, the war should end, uh, he was under um, tremendous uh, pressure because he had to figure out how to uh, oversee a pullout, a withdrawal, and that's really complicated with all the uh, material, equipment, et cetera, that we have over there. So he did say, look, we can't do it by May 1st, but we will do it by September 11th, 20 years to the date after we were attacked. And uh, I, I think he had no other choice given uh, what he inherited. And it appears that, uh, you know, without in any way paying any price uh, that would give us any reason to believe that uh, they will uh, run a different kind of government and that they have broken ties with al-Qaeda, we're going to have to remain really vigilant uh, to protect ourselves from any uh, attack originating out of Afghanistan. And unfortunately, it's another bitter pill from the ways the U.S. government under both parties has handled the response to 9-11. You know we could talk about Iraq, surveillance, and other things. So what's your own 20-year assessment of how the government has done or what you might do differently if, you know, if you were in charge and you knew everything you know now? I think that's the question we need to be asking ourselves. You know, if I take myself personally back to 9-11 and the very next day, September 12th, Chuck Schumer and I were at ground zero with uh, then-Governor Pataki and Mayor Giuliani. Uh, we had literally circled over Ground Zero in a helicopter that picked us up at LaGuardia after flying uh, to uh, New York, being the only plane in the sky other than fighter jets protecting um, our country. We were all terrified, Brian. We didn't know uh, whether there would be more attacks coming. Uh, We did not know uh, how we were going to, uh, you know, track down and hold accountable everybody who in any way played a part in attacking us. And we, I think, went into Afghanistan initially uh, with the goal of, uh, you know, forcing the Taliban to uh, cooperate with us against al-Qaeda and to try to round up bin Laden and others uh, to, you know, bring them to justice, Uh, and it became a much bigger undertaking, and I think there is a lot of, uh, you know, very thoughtful and and regretful analysis uh, of the move into Iraq based on, you know, false information, and the ongoing effort to try to uh, make sure that Afghanistan no longer was a place that would launch attacks against us, you know, continued for nearly, you know, 20 years. I was part of the small group advising President Obama uh, to go after bin Laden uh, based on the intelligence uh, that we had uh, after uh, careful uh, analysis, and that proved to be a successful operation, which we could not have done if we had not still been in Afghanistan. Uh, So there are many, many lessons to learn. We certainly could have done things better and differently, 
we were not attacked again in some big, organized, coordinated, planned attack, uh, the way a number of us feared uh, we might be. And we have to remain very focused on a counterterrorism mission so that we never are attacked and we try to prevent attacks on our friends and allies who also sacrificed, uh, you know, their their, uh, uh, soldiers and and civilian uh, employees uh, in this effort. Secretary Clinton, thank you so much. I look forward to talking on a happier occasion sometime. Thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate it. Take care. It's our special coverage and observance of the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks on WNYC. We'll go back to the ceremony for more for more names and the 959 moment of silence. Right now, let's take another phone call. Catherine in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hi, Catherine. Thank you for calling in. Hi. I look forward to talking on us. Hi, Catherine. Oh, turn turn your radio off. You're hearing the delay. Okay, I'm going to get the speaker. Hi there. Hi there. What do you want to remember from September 11th and your experience? Well, I biked. I was I biked right down there to cover it as a metro reporter for the New York Times, and I was standing at the North Tower when the South Tower fell. Um, and I almost died from being covered by the rubble of the um, falling South Tower. I remember uh, it looked almost like liquid pouring from the sky, and there was this sound of almost like a rumbling, like a freight train. And I remember looking and seeing there was a guy with an FBI jacket and I could see those neon FBI letters. And I remember him waving his arms and saying, run, run, run. And I turned and I ran as fast as I could, faster than I've ever run in my life with this funnel of building at my back. And I dove into this subway station. And as I dove, the building just poured over me. Uh, it seemed like I was being buried alive. The and building I poured over me. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say those words like that before. We have to go back to the ceremony in a minute. How did you get out of there? I just waited as the building was rising around me, and it came up and up. I thought that would be it. And it was in my mouth and in my hair and in my eyes and ears. And then it stopped. And the dust slowly was settling around me and it took a long time. And I was in the darkness. And I found some people who were in the the subway entrance and we embraced each other and held hands and, and Catherine, found our way out. And I'm glad you found your way out. And thank you for sharing that very disturbing but very vivid memory. And to that exact memory that she was sharing, we will now rejoin the reading of the name ceremony outside the Trade Center and stay with it for the moment of silence at 9.59 that commemorates when the first tower collapsed at the World Trade Center. John R. Fisher. Andrew Fisher. Bennett Lawson Fisher. 
Gerald P. Fisher. John Roger Fisher. Thomas J. Fisher. Lucy A. Fishman. Ryan D. Fitzgerald. Thomas James Fitzpatrick. Richard P. Fitzsimmons. Salvatore Fume Fredo. Darlene E. Flagg. Wilson F. Flagg. Christina Donovan Flannery. Eileen Fletcher. And my father-in-law, Lieutenant John A. Crecy, FDNY. Your family loves you and misses you very much. And thank you for sending your son to me. He's a wonderful husband, the best husband a girl could ask for. And I know he learned that from you. We miss you and we love you very much. This is WNYC FM HD and AM New York, WNJT FM 88.1 Trenton, WNJP 88.5 Sussex, WNJY 89.3 Netcong, and WNJO 90.3 Toms River. We are New York and New Jersey Public Radio at 10 o'clock. Our live special coverage and observance continues for another hour here on WNYC this morning, and it continues next with the latest news from NPR and the WNYC Newsroom. Stay with us. We continue now with our special coverage and observance of the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks here on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer. And I want to note that during the news, we passed the time of 10.03, the moment when Flight 93 crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania on 9-11 after passengers on the plane, knowing they were hijacked and having heard of the crashes into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, tried to rush the cockpit and take back control of their plane. But as we all know, it didn't work. The plane crashed and everyone on board was killed. But they saved a lot of people by stopping that plane from reaching its destination. The destination was the U.S. Capitol building. Those passengers were, in a certain respect, impromptu first responders. It was also the official first responders, police officers and firefighters, who ran into the burning towers 
Dozens of police officers and more than 300 firefighters died there. With us now is Gerald Jerry Sanford, a retired FDNY firefighter and native of Staten Island, and the author of a book called It Started with a Helmet, a Retired Firefighter's Return to New York City the Day Before 9-11, published just recently. Jerry, thank you for, for some time on this solemn day. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you, Brian. It's an honor to be here and a pleasure. Thank you. And listeners, our phones in this segment of our coverage and observance will be for first responders or anyone who wants to remember a 9-11 first responder with any brief tribute that you would like to pay them or anything you would like to say. First responders yourselves or anyone who wants to remember a 9-11 first responder, 646-435-7280 is our phone number, 646-435-7280. Again, for any first responders or anyone who wants to remember a 9-11 first responder, 646-435-7280 for this segment of our coverage. Jerry, you retired from the fire department, I see, in 1997, where were you on 9-11, and how did you first hear of the attacks? Uh, Brian, I flew out two hours before the attacks out of LaGuardia. I had, the day before, I had been in a, a fire department ceremony in the South Bronx, and our flight was canceled. We were supposed to fly back to Naples the evening of September 10th, but a bad storm hit New York, closed all the airports. So we, re, we were rebooked for the morning of September 11th, a clear, blue, beautiful sky, and we flew out of LaGuardia uh, for Pittsburgh about 6.30 in the morning. Uh, we were changing planes in Pittsburgh when I was called to a nearby television. And I looked up in horror to see uh, the t- a tower on, uh, on fire. I immediately thought it was maybe a sightseeing plane. I had no idea uh, what it was. Uh, we then uh, sat on the plane, got on the plane, the pilot. Uh, then threw us off the plane, and there we were in pandemonium in Pittsburgh Airport. And, you know, I told the audience earlier of the moment when I first heard, anchoring live coverage, that 343 firefighters had been killed in the collapse of the towers. It was such an unfathomable number, even for me as an outsider that day. What was it like for you to begin to come to grips with that reality? Well, Brian, it was very hard, and even to this moment, uh, because I knew once I saw that tower uh, in flames, I knew the brothers would be going in and going up, going in and going up, and while everybody was coming out. And then uh, as the toll grew, it was just hard to fathom uh, that amount of uh, firefighters uh, were were uh, perished that day when when both towers collapsed. Uh, To this moment, it's a a riveting thought of uh, how that happened. And you volunteered to help afterwards, even though you were really living in Florida at the time, right? That's correct. Yes, I came back. We were able to get out of Pittsburgh, and we got back here to Naples on Wednesday after renting a car. And then the following Friday, when the FAA, I believe, started allowing flights, my wife and I had previously purchased tickets to fly to Philadelphia to our grandson's christening. And then on Sunday, after the christening, I was able to reach Tom Von Essen, the fire commissioner. I was his press secretary when I retired. And I said, Tommy, I'm in Philadelphia. I want to come back. He said, we can use all the help we have. So I went back up there, uh, Brian, and uh, stayed uh, 
almost to the end of October back in the press office dealing with the media. That was the best thing I could do to help my job. I would have been down to the pit and dug with the pails, but I just felt dealing with the media and uh, uh, getting back in the job and helping my brothers because I know that uh, they were searching uh, for survivors, which we all know that didn't happen. Let's take a phone call together. Jessica in Stamford, you're on WNYC. Hi, Jessica. Thank you for calling in. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm all right under the circumstances. How about you? Yes. Jessica, you have a story for us? I was in the police academy. I had been sworn in on the 10th of August with 30 other people. We got pulled out of the classroom after the first tower went down, paired with senior officers in our khakis, no firearms, and directed to train stations because the thought was people would be leaving New York City en masse. And what should we do with them? What should we offer them? Of course, that didn't happen. But I remember clearly two things about the day, the beautiful weather, the bright blue sky, and wondering and thinking this was the kind of career I signed up for, but having no clue on how policing would change then and has changed since then. How has it changed? Well, I think we we were held in very high esteem after 9-11, and then last year things sort of crashed and burned for many of us as we all got painted with a broad brush. But I think... Uh, today, most of us are remembering those who ran towards burning buildings while others ran away. And I think most of the people I'm surrounded by still hold those beliefs very strong and practice that every day on every call they're dispatched to. Jessica, thank you so I much agree. for your call. Yeah. So how do you do it? I mean, this may be a really naive question from no- someone who's never been a first responder, but how do you first responders do it? Run into danger when others run away? How do you even do it? Well, well, Brian, you know that's what we that's what we signed on for. I guess I kind of use that term. You know, we uh, well, I've been I've been in the helping people business over fifty years, and I couldn't think of doing anything else. You know, that's what we do for our, our service service above self. You know, we just want to go in and help people. I know it's like everybody's running out, you're running in. Uh, how many times? I pull up to a, a, a fire blowing out the window, and I would say, "Well, what are you doing here, Jerry?" You know, I mean, yeah, but uh, you do it. You go in and you uh, you save lives, and um, that's your job. That's your job. Joe in Manhattan wants to remember somebody. Joe, you're on WNYC. Thank you for calling in. Thank you, Brian. Uh, I wanted to remember uh, legendary Fire Marshal John Knox, who somebody I knew. Uh, my work as a journalist and um, he had retired from the fire department by 9-11 and that day put on his uniform and ran down with his pickaxe and had kept his gear and drove there and was trying to rescue firefighters uh, and sustained permanent lung damage um, as a result of his work down there. He stayed down there for weeks and he died last uh, spring He's one of the first New Yorkers to die from the coronavirus because of that. Mm. Uh, he was a great man. He was the head of the fire marshal's union for years. Uh, we worked with him uh, uncovering 
arson for profit schemes. He was actually a brilliant guy. He was a former Marine and uh, the kind of New Yorker who really should be remembered today. Thank you for that, Joe. Thank you very much. As we continue with Jerry Sanford, retired FDNY firefighter and author of the book now, It Started with a Helmet, a Retired Firefighter's Return to New York City the Day Before 9-11. And Jerry, the last caller, was remembering someone who got sick uh, from working on the pile after the attack. And I understand that you have 9-11-related lung cancer. Can you describe, if you're comfortable doing so, what you did that made you sick? Well, uh, Brian, I, I came back from 9-11, and I have been employed by the North Naples Fire Department, and every year we go for a medical. And uh, in 2007 of June, I went for my medical and the x-ray and the blood and all that stuff, and that, that, that afternoon I was called down to Naples Community Hospital and said, we found something on your uh, x-ray. And uh, I, was, I said, I was healthy. I wasn't, uh, uh, you know, nothing wrong with me. But, in fact, after looking at the screen, uh, I was diagnosed with cancer in my right upper low, lobe of my right lung and my left lower lobe of my left lung. And subsequently, I was uh, operated on in Moffitt Cancer Center here in Tampa in uh, December and February, and I had the cancer removed. And I was cancer-free to 2012, and then it came back again. Only this time, Brian, I had uh, a lot of chemo and radiation, and I'm happy to say I'm cancer-free since since 2012. So not even living in New York at the time, you came back to help out after the attacks and spent a lot of Correct. time down there and paid the price. Yes. Well, look, that's, uh, that's what you do. You know I mean? We didn't, uh, we just went there. I took the, I took the film crews there every day uh, to get their B roll and they got their shots and out. And, uh, uh, we, uh, you know, it took all these years. In fact, as this man just said about John Knox, who I knew, um, to this day, I, I get a, I get a text every week, uh, of a firefighter or a police officer succumbing to what we all ingested 20 years ago. And there's still people that are dying and will That's continue right. to die because of, you know, because of what we ingested uh, back then, Brian. And in your case, uh, being even retired at that point and your job working as a public relations person for the effort and, as you say, bringing TV news reporters, et cetera, to the site, even just doing that, not digging with shovels and et cetera, right. um, got you sick. That's something for people to know. And, you know, Jerry, when they read the names at the Trade Center site, it's just of the people killed that day and in the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993, those 2,983 names. But the last, um, the, the last number I saw for applications to the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund just recently was more than 111,000 people. So how many people uh. do you think have died prematurely after the attacks for the rescue and recovery work they did? Well, many. We, we have, uh, in fact, more police officers have succumbed to cancer-related illness since 9-11 than were killed on that day. I mean, that's, that's just uh, incredible. And, we, and they keep uh, dying. Uh, uh, like I said, I, I get notifications all the time. And... Uh, you know, that's, uh, we, we lose brothers, uh, whether police or, or fire. 
and because of that, you know, and uh, and you said John Knox died of COVID, but I'm sure that was uh, just part of what he uh, uh, what he ingested all those 20 years ago that probably led to his death. We're going to take our next call from former New York City Parks Commissioner Adrian Benepe, who wants to remember a first responder who died at the World Trade Center. Commissioner, good to hear your voice. Thank you for calling in. Yeah, thank you for um, taking my call. Yeah, so um, I knew Bruce. Um, Bruce Reynolds was a New York City urban park ranger. And then we were colleagues together in the early 1980s. And uh, later he went and joined the Port Authority Police Force. And he was working um, at the George Washington Bridge the day day of the attack. And, uh, of course, sped down to the towers and was last seen rescuing a very badly burdened person before presumably the towers collapsed on him. And um, he had been involved in a... uh, effort with his father when he was a young child in Inwood to turn a really derelict corner of Isham Park into a garden, working with other neighborhood kids. And uh, his father, for years after Bruce died, Bruce was an only child, his father worked to maintain that garden in Bruce's memory. He later asked me, as park commissioner, if I would name the garden Bruce's Garden so it would forever be in memory of Bruce, who left behind not his wife and two very young children that day. He was a wonderful, sweet, personable uh, lover of life and of nature and of people, and just such a great loss of the many, many great losses of that day. And you did a good thing, Commissioner, by making that garden part of the New York City Parks Department. I don't live too far from there, and I've been to Bruce's garden, and it is such a serene spot. Um, fitting of his memory, uh, the way you're describing it. And I assume you know this. He was a hero on both sides of the Hudson. They named a street in Fort Lee um, that I remember being surprised to see the first time I saw it, just across the George Washington Bridge. Bruce Reynolds Street or Avenue, I I I forget. Yeah, there was a Bruce. Yeah, I I went back to the garden last Saturday, really just to sort of pay tribute to him and feel his spirit. And I felt like there were other people there doing the same thing because the wind was sort of softening in the pine trees and birds were singing and you could really feel the spirit of his father has passed away. His mother has passed. Jim Dwyer, who wrote such a beautiful story about him has also passed. who was also from the neighborhood. And it was just this very beautiful moment of communing with his spirit through nature. And he was a great nature lover. And then there's a plaque in his memory on the other side of the George Washington bridge. There's a little plaza. If you ride your bike across and just this innocuous little corner, there's a stone plaque with his likeness on it. So he's um, he's commemorated, as you say, on both sides of the Hudson. Yeah. Adrian Benepe, thank you so much for checking in with us today and for those memories. Joan in Hell's Kitchen, you're on WNYC. Hi, Joan. Yes, good morning, and thanks for doing this lovely program. I want to remember Father Michael Judge, who also has a street named after him, who was instrumental in, uh, unfortunately passed away on on 9-11 itself and went to administer and help as much as he could. He's a great name, especially in the Catholic Church, but also just for everything that he did for 
all of Manhattan, not just Midtown. And it seems to me that it's a very sad situation today to be sort of experiencing a double holocaust with the people who have passed away from working on the pile in ones and threes and fives and ones we don't even know about in addition all the people we lost that day and so close and similar to the COVID deaths of people who are lack of breath, lack of oxygen and compromised lungs from the same sort of deaths to be having this wall of the the lost on one side from 20 years ago and the wall of the currently passing away from COVID and from related deaths. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Joan, thank you so much. You beautifully made that connection. And I want to thank the man who's been our guest for this segment of our coverage, retired FDNY firefighter and native of Staten Island, Jerry Sanford. He's the author now of It Started With a Helmet, a retired firefighter's return to New York City the day before 9-11, published just recently. Jerry, thank you. Good luck to you. I hope you stay in good health. Thank you, Brian. And never forget 9-11 and God bless America. Thank you again. And now we're going to return to the ceremony, rejoin the reading of the name ceremony outside the Trade Center and stay with it for the moment of silence coming at 1028 that commemorates when the second tower collapsed at the World Trade Center. Thomas Theodore Haskell Jr. Timothy Sean Haskell. Joseph John Hassan III. Leonard W. Hatton Jr. Terence S. Hatton, Michael Helmut Bob, Timothy Aaron Haviland, Donald G. Havish Jr., Anthony Maurice Hawkins, Kaburo Hansatsu, James Edward Hayden, Robert J. Hayes, Philip T. Hayes, W. Ward Pine. Scott Jordan Hazelcorn. Michael K. Healy. Roberta B. Hever. Charles Francis Xavier Curran. John F. Heffernan. Michelle M. Kinberger. Sheila M. S. Hine. H. Joseph Heller, Jr. Joanne L. Heltebridal, Ronald John Hemway, Mark F. Hemscott, Ronnie Lee Henderson, Brian Hennessy, Edward R. Hennessy Jr., Michelle Marie Enrique, Joseph Patrick Henry, William Hen- L. Henry Jr., Catherine Henry Robinson. John Christopher Henwood, Robert Allen Hepburn, Mary Herencia, Lindsay C. Perkness III, Harvey Robert Hermer, Humberto Fernandez, Raul H. Fernandez,
keeping the American dream alive. And I ask for everyone to honor that and keep it alive and to continue to support and defend your country and protect your loved ones. My children speak to you all the time and I feel your support. Thank you. And we remember so many other Americans lost to violence, oppression, and the pandemic in our great country who do not receive a national moment of recognition and whose families mourn them deeply as we do here today. 
and my beloved sister, Catherine Patricia Salter, she had a habit of saying, get over it. And Kathy, we have never gotten over it, but we have gotten on with it. We've tried to live life fully each day, and your love and companionship as a sister continues to inspire us and to inspire me. Your light shone bright and beautiful, and you live on in our hearts. Gary Harold. Jeffrey Allen Hirsch. Thomas J. Hetzel. Leon Bernard Hayward, MC Sundance. Brian Christopher Hickey. Enemencio Dario Hidalgo Cedeno. Timothy Brian Higgins. Robert D. W. Higley II. Todd Russell Hill. Clara Victorine Hines. Neil O. Hines. Mark Hindi. Katsuyuki Hirai. Heather Malia Ho. Tara Yvette Hobbs. Thomas Anderson Hobbs. James J. Hoban. Robert Wayne Hobson III. Duan Hodges. Ronald G. Horner. Patrick A. Hoey. John The A. reading of the Hunter. name ceremony ongoing outside the Trade Center with the 2,983 names, alphabetically you may have noticed, of those killed on 9-11 plus the six killed in the 1993 World Trade Center car bombing. We also heard in that stretch Chris Jackson singing the song Never Alone. With us now for the final stretch of our coverage and observance this morning are two special guests, Daisy Kahn, founder and executive director of the Women's Islamic Initiative for Spirituality and Equality, acronym WISE, and the author of the 2018 book, Born with Wings, The Spiritual Journey of a Modern Muslim Woman, and two forthcoming books, 30 Rights of Muslim Women and Wise Up, White Supremacy. Daisy and her husband, Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf, ran a small mosque in Lower Manhattan before 9-11 and tried to create a larger Islamic cultural center there as an interfaith act of unity, but that plan, some of you remember, was thwarted by political opposition. And also with us is Reverend Jackie Lewis, senior pastor at the Middle Collegiate Church in the East Village, and she too has a forthcoming book that we'll tell you about as we go. Daisy and Reverend Jackie, welcome back to WNYC. Thank you, Brian. Thank you very much for having me. And listeners, our phones remain open in this final stretch for your most vivid memories of 9-11 or for someone you would like to remember who was killed or for these guests from religious traditions, how 9-11 affected you spiritually or anything related at 646-435-7280, 646-435-7280. Can I ask you each to remember briefly Briefly, as many of our guests and callers have been doing, where you were on the morning of 9-11 when you heard about the attacks or experienced them in some way, and what you did the rest of that day. Reverend Jackie, would you begin? I will, Brian. Thank you so much. And Daisy, it's such an honor to be here with you today. 
Um, I was in D.C. Oh, you're welcome. I was in D.C., Brianna, working at a foundation for exceptional children and, um, frankly, brushing my teeth. I always watch the Today Show as I was getting dressed for work. And one of my best friends from college uh, works at an NBC affiliate in Peoria. And he called me and said, did you see that? And literally, I had just walked out of the room. So I did not see the first tower if the first plane hit the, the tower and walked back in to just see the smoldering, smoky, um, horrible, what does it mean yet? We didn't know what it meant yet. And we watched the day together. We watched the coverage together. We wept together. We called our parents in Chicago thinking that might be the next place mommy and daddy get inside and stay inside. I could not have imagined, I guess I should have imagined that they would come for uh, the Pentagon, uh, but they did. Uh, military helicopters, Brian, you know, it was a war zone. People lining up for food, people running out of food. Those days in D.C. were were devastating. And I continue to mourn the loss of all the lives, uh, both the people who died in the towers and the ones in uh, Pennsylvania at the Pentagon, and, of course, in subsequent war, uh, mourning all of those folks. And Daisy, will get right to you. But because of the story that Reverend Jackie just told, I want to take our next caller right here because I think Lynn in Port Jefferson was a doctor near the Pentagon on 9-11. Lynn, thank you for calling in. Hi there. Hi. You have a remembrance for us. Yes, I do. Um, so I'm a, I'm a palliative care doctor. At the time of the day of the uh, attacks, I was working um, at the VA affiliate of the University of, Mel uh, University of Maryland, the Baltimore VA. And I remember when the, when, the, um, when the planes hit, I was about to start seeing patients. And I remember someone saying something bad was happening in New York and running into the, the waiting room where there was a ton of veterans waiting to be seen, WW2s, Korean War, Vietnam veterans, sitting there in various states of sort of freak out and shock. And then our staff sort of pouring into this waiting room many of whom who had family members who worked at the Pentagon. So we were all sort of gathered in this waiting room, watching these TVs, and then someone walked in and said, for medical staff, we were going to be under lockdown, meaning we weren't going to leave because the University of Maryland, which was a major trauma center, was sending, there were barges going up to New York, and they were going to pick up the casualties and bring them back here, and we were going to take care of them. So we all sort of took a deep breath and sort of tried to reach our families, which none of us could. That day I had no idea what was happening with my children. And we just waited, and we waited sometimes with veterans in this waiting room, just sort of debriefing with them, debriefing with our colleagues, hours and hours and hours of waiting. We really couldn't, only information we were really getting was from the television, but just sort of waiting for these casualties to arrive where we were going to be deployed in some way to help. And I remember just sort of sitting there waiting, waiting, and then, I don't know, maybe 8 p.m., 10 p.m. that night, they just said go home because there were no casualties. There and were no casualties. I and I, I remember that in New York, too, um, when yeah. I and my colleagues were evacuated from WNYC in Lower Manhattan and walking uptown along First Avenue where we were passing the NYU medical complex there and sirens, sirens, sirens and people were 
donating blood right from the beginning. Yeah. And the doctors, the hospitals were staffing up, and then the casualties never came because people either, they never came. except for a few exceptions, survived intact, or for the most part, if they were there, they died. They were dead. And I, I think all of us sort of with that realization that moment that we were said, go home, there's no casualties, really, really what had happened. That so many people were dead, that it was so devastating. And I think for me, just looking back, I off, I'll go back to that moment of desolation. It was the only thing I can think of that I wasn't able to help as a doctor um, in this situation because everybody was gone. Lynn, thank you for your service and thank you for your call. So Daisy Khan, where were you that day? Brian, I used to work in the towers on the 106th floor in the 80s, so it was my office tower. I watched the towers go down while I was in Colorado, in Golden, Colorado. I saw my neighborhood attack, my city attack, my state attack, my country attack, in a neighborhood where I worshipped, and all from sunny Golden, Colorado. My ex-husband and I immediately knew that the world had changed for us because our mosque was the closest to the ground zero. We rushed back in a Lincoln car, drove all the way, like pretty much, you know, day and night so we could get back here to our bereaved community. As some may not know, Muslims died in this tragedy too. There were 90 nationalities that died and out of those were 60 Muslims. And there were members of our community that died that really needed our attention. So, you know, needless to say, life has changed for us. It directly impacted our lives because Americans were so fearful of what they were hearing. They were fearful of Muslims. They, were, they didn't understand what had happened. They became vulnerable. And we had to step up and be there for them. And, of course, every American Muslim has had to live with the reality after 9-11 of being seen as suspect or as other in some way that's different than what came before. You've leaned into that role and tried to reach across faith so consistently as well as to be an activist for justice, women's rights, etc., within your own faith. Um, one of my fond memories of the period after 9-11 is when... <laughs> When you and uh, Imam Faisal invited me to host at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, an interfaith ceremony uh, that you organized in memory of those lost on 9-11 and in hopes of bringing everyone together, I was so honored to be asked. So can you talk about how 9-11 changed the work that you were, were already involved in? So... Personally, 9-11 changed my life because Americans really had a lot of questions about, uh, you know, Islam and Muslims. And my then husband was very busy and I was trying to help him uh, with his work. And I remember going to Princeton, New Jersey. Um, a little old lady asked me this very profound question about Muslim women. And uh, in Afghanistan, and I rattled off you know, that Muslim women had all these rights and they were, these rights were given to them in seventh century. And she asked me, well, what about women in Afghanistan? And, um, you know, I was angry at the images I was seeing as we are now witnessing the same images coming back. 
And uh, I didn't know what to do, so I decided that it was really important for me to quit my architectural design career and dedicate myself full-time to community service. And so 9-11 had a direct impact on my life as I had a complete career change. But Brian, if you give me one second, I just want to wrap up the impact of 9-11 on the Muslim community, which has really had a disproportionate impact here in the homeland as well as in abroad. So immediately in the aftermath, we had the special registration, you may recall, where many innocent people were detained and deported. Then we went to war in Iraq, Iraq, Afghanistan, and even to Syria. And in these wars, close to a million people have died. So if you can just imagine statistically, it's like one American to almost 300 Muslims who have perished over the years. And hate crimes have gone up by more than 60%. Islamophobia is very much alive. There was the Muslim ban with Donald Trump. And now we have the rise of white supremacy, which is a direct threat to the Muslim community. We are in their crosshairs. So the impact has been, is, is still being felt, uh, you know, throughout our community globally Absolutely. as well as locally. Alana in Westchester, you're on WNYC. Hi, Alana. Thank you for calling in. Yeah, no problem, Brian. Um, I, I love your show and I listen to WNYC all the time. It's just a fabulous radio station. Um, I have two memories of, of this, of 9-11. I just that never leave me. And one has to do with, um, I'm an attorney, and I like to do, you know, from time to time pro bono work. Uh, way after the, right after uh, 9-11, the city were looking for, I think, attorneys and others with legal backgrounds to help, um, you know, gather information so that they could issue death certificates to, you know, to, to individuals whose loved ones perished. And so I, you know, took up the call and went, went to, um, I think they were running like a, I don't know, a, um, a place on the west side uh, where the cruise ships come in. Anyways, there was a there was a, a woman who came in with her friend and her husband. I think she he may have worked at Cantor Fitzgerald. He perished. She was really really upset and and pretty pretty angry actually because you know she, she didn't think the city had defended um, you know um, her husband and, and 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 that there wasn't enough you know. Um, terrorism, um, you know, protections in the building. In any case, and so, you know, she was just very angry. Um, and and at one point, you know, she made a reference to the fact that we city employees, you know, weren't doing our jobs well enough. And we, you know, someone explained to her, we're, we're not city employees. We're just attorneys that are, you know, giving our time on a pro bono, you know, to help. And the moment she realized we weren't city employees, she just became... You know, she said, wow, you know, I really appreciate all the work you're doing, and this is so charitable. And and it was like the first time I realized that, and I'd never been treated like that, where you went from someone who was, you know, viewed you as your enemy to someone who was, you know, doing a great thing for you. It was just an amazing transformation in, in front of my eyes. Um, you know, the other the other memory I have of that day is I work, my office was at 46th and 3rd Avenue. Um, I came in early that day, and you know I listened to your to WNYC, and I couldn't see the Twin Towers, but I heard, you know, that there was a, there was a hit. And then my husband called me and said, "Gee, there's something going on, Alana. You you know you should sort of maybe leave the city." When the second Twin Tower got hit, I, I realized, "Gee, we're under attack." And so I, I was gonna, I was going to get out of there as quickly as I did. I couldn't get some of my my fellow attorneys to get out of the building fast enough. 
any in any case, I live in Westchester, so I went to I got on the last train on the Metro North train. On my train, though, were two women who must have been at Grand Zero. They were, you know, they had like um, soot all over them. Their clothes was torn, and they were honestly just—they looked like they had gone through a war scene, um, and they were really hysterical. Um, they, they, they were shaking, and at one point after the train had finished leaving 125th street it was over the river uh, into the bronx it stopped and you know the announcer said oh my gosh the twin towers the first one had you know had um you know had had fallen and these women who had obviously been there they were they they were just they were shrieking the the rest of the the rest of the train was gasping and everyone was just sort of circling around them holding them and, and just saying it would be okay and it just it it, it i'll never forget that thank you for and that so every- for that vivid memory thank you for all of what you brought to this program including that that story at the beginning of your call about not being a city worker and people being angry at you thinking you were a, were a city worker at first and thinking that the city didn't protect people enough uh, from 9-11 in advance. It's, we don't hear that kind of thing very much, um, but, uh, but it's an important piece to add to the conversation. Our guests are Daisy Khan, founder and executive director of the Women's, Women's Islamic Initiative in Spirituality and Equality, and Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Lewis, senior minister at Middle Collegiate Church in the East Village and author of the forthcoming book, Fierce Love, A Bold Path to Ferocious Courage and Rule-Breaking Kindness That Can Heal the World. And, you know, the two of you come from different religious traditions, Islam and Christianity, but I wonder if you think you bring similar sensibilities to this remembrance of the 9-11 attacks. Reverend Jackie? I, I think we do, Brian. Um, I was a great, I've been a great admirer of Daisy's work. Um, she and her former husband. Uh, I think you know I'm a universalist kind of a faith person, Brian, uh, that God speaks many languages and, um, and the, the, that love is actually at the center of all the world's major religions, love of neighbor, love of self, love of the holy. I think the sensibility that I feel like uh, Daisy and I shared is that maybe maybe, in the, maybe one of the most tragic casualties of 9-11 is the way it unleashed latent hatred or, or unlocked fear, that we turned neighbor against neighbor, that um, Bob, Bob Balbir Singh Sodi was killed in Arizona on, on September 15th, a Sikh elder who owned a gas station because he looked Muslim. And what Daisy's saying about the way Muslims have been so deeply impacted by this, this act of terror committed by some Muslims. Uh, we are seeing the, the tsunami of hatred that has been the result of the last decades of white supremacist ideologies, Brian, that hide out in our religions, and I'll critique Christianity because I'm a Christian, that, that anti-Semitism hides in Christianity, racism hides in Christianity, sexism and heteronormativity hides in Christianity, a religion that is supposed to be founded on Rabbi Jesus's edict to love neighbor, love God, love self, um, is just laced 
with violence and hatred. So what I believe that my sister and I share is a, a call for us to work across faiths, uh, across our differences, to build a human community, uh, one that I would call a community of Ubuntu, where we understand that we are inextricably connected to each other, Brian. What happens yeah. to my Muslim siblings happens to me. Daisy, you want to continue that? Yeah, I want to say that what really unites us all as human beings is that we all carry the spark of the divine within us. And that's what makes us so unique. And that's what gives us that very special quality as human beings. And it's really time for now all of our faith communities to make things right, things that have gone wrong, to really reflect, learn from the mistakes that we have made as a nation. And we are still making and we need to build a future where we can break the backs of things like Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, racism, xenophobia, and all forms of extremism that are tearing us apart and are harming people. And our work is cut out for us. You know, in the last 20 years, we were doing national healing. And now I think that we have to do national reckoning and heal our nation and keep our own homeland safe. And Brian, if it's okay to just dive into the back of that for a second, one of my mm -hmm. friends, Carrie Kelly, her stepfather, um, Lieutenant Joseph Gerard Levy, uh, died in the second tower on 9-11. Um, so I want to say his name and Joey Morelli, a, a friend who is alive and did all the work at 9-11 um, as a first responder. But Carrie, who's certainly mourning her, her stepdad today, is saying Are, we have to go beyond never forget. We've got to go beyond never forget to use this moment, these moments, to make a new path together. That's an individual commitment, an individual reckoning. What am I going to do to be a peacemaker? How am I going to model for my children patience and kindness? How am I going to react to the stranger and build a world where we celebrate that we're different and think of that as a gift uh, from the universe and from love, from God to each other. So there's work to do as we mourn this this tragic day, we also need to look to the future to and begin that future this moment. What do we want to look like as a nation, as a globe, as a human family? Listeners, when we conclude our live coverage at the top of the hour, we invite you to stay tuned to WNYC for an investigative documentary that brings to light the decades-long struggle that preceded the attacks. You'll hear from CIA agents, security experts, and people who knew the terrorists personally. Stay tuned for Blind Spot: The Road to 9-11, coming up at 11 o'clock in just a few minutes. This does conclude our live 9-11 observance. I want to thank Daisy Kahn. Khan and Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Lewis for being our final guests. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, you for having us. And to all of you bye who bye. called in today and to all of you who called in, but we didn't have time to take on the air, thank you to all of you who summoned the courage to speak publicly, to say the names of people you lost or speak the thoughts that you thought and the feelings that you felt, the courage to do that publicly on this 20th anniversary. Thanks to producers Megan Ryan, Lisa Allison, and Zach Goddard-Cohen, Zoe Azale too, and Jason Isaac at the audio controls. Coverage continues with the road to 9-11, followed by more special programming all day today on WNYC. I'm Brian Lehrer, and let's conclude up to 11 o'clock by going back to the ceremony at Lower Manhattan and a little more of the reading of the names live.
You would think after 20 years, it would get easier. The last 20 years, you lost out on birthdays, holidays, anniversaries, Sunday dinners, celebrating our favorite season, fall, and our lovely Florida vacations, and watching your eight grandchildren grow up and watching them be born. The missing goes on and on, and all we have to go on with our lives, we have, and all of your children are successful, and that's a testament to you, Mom. Your absence has created a huge void in our hearts and our lives, and that will never be filled again. We miss you so much, Mom. It's unbearable. God bless America. Please keep us safe. I love you. David W. Lechak. Eugene Gabriel Lazar. James Patrick Leahy. Joseph Gerard Levy. Neil J. Levy. Robert J. LeBlanc. Leon Labour. Kenneth Charles Lady. Alan J. Liederman. Elena F. Ledesma. Alexis Leduc. Daniel John Lee. David S. Lee. Dong Shul Lee. Gary H. Lee. Hyun Jun Lee. Juanita Lee. Catherine.